welcome to Dead Headspace, a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes killing time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are talking to the author of many books, but of recent closing costs, Bracken McLeod. Say hi. Hey, how's it going? You have probably the coolest name in <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's funny because it's, it's memorable, but it's unpronounceable if you just look at the spelling. Like, I can't tell you how many times a day I get a call from somebody and like, can I speak with Brecken McLeod? I'm just like, no, he ain't here, man. <laughs> you know, that when I lived up in, because we're all from the same general area of massachusetts but when i moved to jersey five years ago no one could say mcdonough it's weird (laughs) and i'm like do you know how many i run up to like back in my home i'm from bridgewater you know how many people know a mcdonough like many of my kind (laughs) right yeah yeah it's strange if uh you know if your if your name was lapalia it would be different yeah mcdonough yeah (laughs) uh now let's go to the baseline question what got you into horror you know it's funny i um I tell you know I've been a horror fan my entire life. Like I remember, well, I mean it's it's funny because it depends on whether you want my first uh, traumatic experience with horror or my first like really in love with experience with horror. My first traumatic experience with horror was I was six years old, and my mom it was the seventies. You know because I'm uh, wicked old, and. <laughs> And uh, and she just couldn't find a sitter, and she had this date, and so she's like, "Well, we'll just throw Bracken in the back seat, and he'll fall asleep before the second feature, which was Brian De Palma's Carrie." Oh, right. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose better known as Stephen King's Carrie, but the movie was made by Brian De Palma. Yeah. Anyways, I was so excited to be at the drive-in. I was like six years old, and I'd never had you know never been there before, and so I stayed up, and um, and so when. You know, at the end, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil a 40 year old movie. At the end, when when Carrie's hand comes up out of the gravel, oh yeah, right, and like grabs, uh, you, you know, Mary Master Antonio or whatever her name is, and 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 uh, and and I was just terrified, but it was uh, it was such an interest, it was such a fun experience because because it was fake and it was you know it was at the movies and I mean the, the funny part of the story is that that I was terrified. Um, my mom her date was this uh, was this marine who was sort of freshly back from vietnam and so he he had bad PS- ptsd and so when that hand came up out of the ground he screamed tried to exit the vehicle but he didn't bother opening the door he just tried to stand up uh-huh. and so he knocked himself out and so my mom is screaming because her date has knocked himself out in the car i'm screaming because the hand has scared me he's scared me the whole thing and it was like all right well this is what going to movies is like <laughs> I can't believe, but someone beat Mark Steensland's answer of watching Rosemary's Baby, and by watching, I mean hearing it in the back of his car in a drive. <laughs> Holy shit! Brennan, jump in, buddy. What's your thoughts? Oh, see, now that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh, that's so cool. We've got another, you know, little kid thrown in the back of the car, uh, brought to an inappropriate movie. But oh my god, was that? You know, did that go in a direction I didn't expect? <laughs> It's so funny because I inherited that car. That was my first car, and there was still a dent in the roof where that guy had tried to stand up, and he had actually dented the roof of the car outward with his head. 
And I, you know what? I, I just, uh, I don't even know where to begin with that because that's so. <laughs> it, have you pulled from that experience in any of your fiction? I, you know, I pulled from personal experience in a lot of my fiction. Um, I haven't been shy at all about about sort of plumbing my childhood and my and even my adult experiences that were um, sort of less than you know less than ideal to. Mm-hmm. You know, to, not just because I'm trying to work things out, but because I think they're actually legitimately um, scary experiences that, you know, that, that allow me um, an opportunity to kind of share with people um, real fears that I have. And I'm one of those guys that, um, that thinks that, you, you know, if I want a reader to feel it when they're looking at the page, I've got to feel it when I'm at the keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it creating that kind of experience, um, you know, is, is, I mean, obviously it's a lot easier if I'm mining like real sense memory, you know, it's kind of like method acting, um, yeah. you know, and so this is kind of the reason that I write the things I write, because what's really scary to me is real human cruelty. Yeah. And, you know, and so slimy monsters from, you know, from the quarry don't really do it for me. Like, yeah, no, that's cool. And I enjoy it. But what really scares me is a, is a person who's, who's really calm and collected until they're not. Right. That, until, until they're perfectly cruel. And, and that, I think, is terrifying because I've experienced that in my life. Wow. I love how you put that. Uh, so I take it that you're also a big fan of Jack Ketchum. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, his, his work for me was transformative. I, you know, I remember, I remember writing early books and feeling like, okay, I can't go too far because I'll lose, I'll lose people. I'll lose Mm. the reader. And then I read off season. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, and, and the thing about, about, about Jack's work, about Dallas's work was that, was that he was so good at characters, so good at creating characters that you really liked. You know, it wasn't just like some splatter tropes where it's like, oh, I got the jock, I got the the goof, I got the stoner and the and the prom girl. He created real characters that you really wanted um, to see succeed and identify with, right? And then he and then he put them in horrible situations where they were being butchered by cannibals. Right. And, and so, yeah, I read off season and it completely changed the way I thought about writing. And, and I said, Oh, you know, I can go to really, really dark places as long as you've done the work and, and, and made people care about the people who are, you know, who are, who are there, you know? So, you know, it's funny because I, I have a, uh, kind of a love hate relationship with the idea of splatterpunk. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is that um, I grew up on it. You know, I grew up in the 80s and I grew up with Skip and Spectre and and um, Matheson and, you know, and 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 these guys and uh, Clive Barker, you know, was yeah. a huge influence yep. on me. Right. Same. But they were all writing about uh, about the times. You know, they were they were injecting sort of political social attitudes into this and creating a, a metaphorical way for working through the world. And it wasn't just about how gross they could get. 
Mm-hmm. And so I love splatterpunk writing and I love that idea of extreme horror, but for me, it's really got to have um, heart, you know, at its core and something to say, because if it's just like, uh, you know, rape fan, the book, I'm like, Ugh. you know, I, it doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. But if it's, you know, I'm a disaffected person who's ostracized and this is how I'm relating to the world and here's this horrible thing that's happening, like that makes sense and I really connect with it. You know, that makes me think of what uh, I think it was the first exposure to, for me, for George A. Romero, uh, his whole zombie world, yeah. was the 1990, yeah, 1990 remake that Tom Savini directed. Oh, right. I'm pretty sure it was Savini that said that he said it in the daytime and yeah it was him actually mm-hmm. he said he said in the daytime because you know you want to create this illusion like it could happen at any moment and you yep. you see this one thing and you're essentially a magi- uh, magician um you see this one thing in the right corner but out of the left corner that's where the horror comes and you, it's a misdirection and i love that um I want to go back to one thing that really I can connect with very much. So when I started to write, well, probably like all of us, you've always written, but then you're starting to really explore stuff in your later years of life. And I too was like, I don't know if like my mom or friends are going to be like, he's (laughs) fucked up, put a straight jacket on him. But then you meet a bunch of people for me, it was Twitter. um, And I flat out said, I don't know if this is too far, but then people are like, it's, you know, I mean, as long as you're not, I don't know any examples that can come on the top of my head, actually. Just write your story and kind of, you know, when you're touching on, if you were to touch on really sensitive topics, like if you're dealing with kids or animals or whatever, you know, be careful. Right. That's pretty much the advice I got. I think that's the thing is that is that you can write about anything, yeah. right? As long as you approach it with respect for the people who suffer as a result of whatever cruelty you're examining, right? So if you were going to write a book about child abuse, mm-hmm. right, which, which, you know, let's go back to Jack Ketchum, right? He wrote this book um, that was called, it was originally called Stranglehold. Um, and then they ended up retitling it to, um, oh, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the retitle at the moment. But basically, it's a, it's a book about a, a bad divorce and a kid who's, who's being abused by his father. And, and Jack Dallas wrote it with such care and compassion for the kid that he was able to write real unpleasant moments of abuse in this book. But you never felt... Like he was trying to victimize you as an audience. He was trying to illuminate the subject, right? And make you care about mm-hmm. what was happening to the kid. And I think that's the big difference between, um, between exploitation and exploration, right? Is do I care about who this is happening to? Mm-hmm. Or am I just witnessing an atrocity? That, um, you know, right. the first... Jack Ketchum book Brennan and I both read was The Girl Next Door because oh, because yeah. yeah because people were like this is on the deep end and at first my reaction was I loved it and then I was like that's a weird way to feel that way but then we talked <laughs> to people and I'm like I, it's not the content that I love it's just how he told the story yeah. in the begin in the beginning 
you know, you got a little uh, boy seeing a girl, and they're just in the stream, and they're catching a, what was it, like um, little frogs or something? Yeah, crayfish. yeah, in a, in a, like in a jar, yeah, crayfish in a jar. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just beautiful. I'm like, this is, I, I never experienced that exact moment, but it's, like, beautiful. I love it. Yeah, no, the brilliance of that book, and I think a lot of people really miss it because they get so caught up in the in what happens to the girl. But the brilliance of that book is that it's about, from, from my perspective, my reading of it, is that it's about uh, bystander guilt. Right. Yeah. The yep. book is told from the boy's point of view, and he is conflicted about should he participate, should he intervene, call the cops, try to rescue the girl, and he feels guilty about not acting soon enough. Right. Um, and and the moral center of the book is strong because it's all about this kid who's trying to figure out what's the right thing to do in a really wrong situation. Right. And it's not just about torturing a girl, you know, and there are a lot of people who are like, Oh man, it's so hard because he just tortures the shit out of this girl. And you're like, well, yeah, he does. But really it's about, it's about, uh, what kind of strength does it take to stop a bad thing from happening? And that, uh, the way he ends, the way that the kid kind of not makes up for not doing anything, but, finally does something uh to the mom that that character i hated that mom more than i think any, any <laughs> oh, no, other she's thing. terrible you know she's and she's based on a real life person you know that was the that was based on the sylvia likens murders in yeah. the 60s and you know and the and the auntie in that book is based on a real life person and it's just so it's so crushing to think that that you know that that wasn't just from Dallas's imagination, you know, the, 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 the situation that he wrote was hit entirely his imagination, but the, the, the framework, you know, the, the situation itself was based in reality and some real person suffered those real injuries. And, and yeah, he found a way to humanize it and, and, and really make it about moral dilemma as opposed to just exploiting pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, to, to me, uh, the entire success of what he pulls off hinges on, I think it's like chapter 42 or something. The one, the one that's like a paragraph long, oh, yeah. um, because it's at, at that point in the book, had he decided, you know, I'm going to go full tilt and just describe everything that happens. Then you definitely risk being disrespectful to the original yep. case. You risk, um, uh, journeying into exploitation but instead it it takes a step back and it's almost more horrific for that like all the stuff you've seen up to that point that's nothing compared to you know what happens next i can't just talk about what happens next he just writes from the point of view of that boy saying i can't say what what happened like it's so impacting i did you know i i i i just i straight up copied it <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I dedicate closing thoughts to Dallas because um, you know bef- we were friends, and and I had asked him to um, to blurb the book I I published prior to this, uh, Come to Dust, which was a book about about uh, dead kids who come back to life, right? And and part of the book is this um, is sort of the religious response to the idea of resurrection. 
And I felt like it was an angle I couldn't ignore. It just seemed so obvious on the thing. But, but, but Dallas's thing was he didn't really want to talk about religion. You know, he, he certainly wasn't religious and he didn't really feel like it had a place in his work. And so he's like, can I just, can I blurb the next one? Right. Like, I don't, I kind of don't want to do this. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And so he says, okay, so, so the next thing you write, send me, you know, send me the manuscript. And he, and he was offering basically to, you know, to sort of do a beta read of the book. And then, um, and then he died, you know, before I was able to get the finished project product to him, Yeah. you know, and this, and so this was kind of the book I was writing for him to read as a beta reader, you know, the one I really wanted to impress him with. And, and, and I did, I pulled a whole bunch of, of his tricks out of the magic bag, you know, and put them into my book, including that, you know, that idea of the, of the one paragraph chapter, you know, I can't talk about it. And uh, yeah. And so, and so that's why the book is dedicated to him is because it's really, it was really my kind of uh, my, my dialogue with him as an as a mentor and an influence on my work wow uh, i didn't i didn't realize the connection with him was that strong that's yeah. amazing yeah he's one of those he's one of those authors where when i was really getting into like the independent side of things um it's i still think it's so weird to say the independent but i don't know what's to call it for lack of a better word because like you and a bunch of others, it's not just the independent market that you're being published in. So for lack of a better word, the independent market, when I started to really get into that side, was about three-ish years ago. And that was at the end of his life. And, mm. I, man, I, I never interacted with him, but he's one of those where he impacted me. And I, right. I never even knew him. And I he just was, know that he was a great guy. Yeah. No, he was just, he was just, he was so welcoming and encouraging of new writers and new voices and he wanted to help people. And, and, um, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of us, Michael Bailey and Paul Michael Anderson and me, and just a whole bunch of, of writers at that moment that he was really, um, you know, uh, uh, Megan Arcura Moran is another one, you know, who he just kind of like, uh, lifted us up and tried to help us figure out craft and how to and how to write, um, you know, uh, uh, real what I call secular horror. Mm. You know, no monster. You know, no slimy monsters from from the outer beyond. Real monsters from you know that you would recognize on the street. And uh, and yeah, he was just a he was just a really supportive warm person and it's and it's one of those things you know you hear it all the time like you know you hang out with horror writers and it's like oh horror writers are the nicest people i've met because they <laughs> you know they yeah. they get it out all they, you know they get it all out on the page and he was kind of exactly that like he was just chill and cool um because i think whatever darkness was in him he got out on the page that's awesome the last thing i just want to before we Jump back to you is because uh, I want to cover the beginning of the first time you were like, I love horror, what what have you, however you were. Me and Brennan always go back to the fact that The Girl Next Door was published in 1989, and we still can't believe our minds are boggled that that, that <laughs> happened. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's an amazing book, you know, for the time because it's so bold and it's so it so goes there. 
you know, and I and I and I do wonder what would have happened to his career if it hadn't been for that initial bad review of off season by the Village Voice. Mm. You know, if if Berkeley Books had not had that pushback and had, and had, and had backed him as fully as they had intended originally. You know, and I and I've told people I actually told Dallas this before he died. I told him straight to his face. I you know that that if he had published Red as Dallas Mayor instead of as Jack Ketchum, that it could have been a mainstream breakthrough, in my opinion, because it's just a beautiful book. You know, and it's entirely a Jack Ketchum book. Like, it's totally him. But it was one of those things where it had so much heart and so much relatability that, that yeah, if he, had, if he had gotten rid of the pseudonym for that one thing, he might have just broken huge. But, no, it is a, it's a huge deal that, that The Girl Next Door got published at all, given how hard that that book is to read. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's go back to the first time you really right. found yourself loving the genre. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the first time I really found myself loving, like loving the genre. I was 10 years old and Ridley Scott's Alien came out. Right. And I didn't see this one at the drive-in. I saw this one. We had uh we had stolen cable. Um uh, because, because, you know, my mom was, uh, was that kind of, you know, kind of that kind of person, you know, we had like, uh, pirate HBO and they were showing, uh, alien. And I was so, um, uh, kind of hypnotized by the, by the alien, by the xenomorph and how completely different it looked from anything I had ever seen in my life, you know, and I had seen, you know, uh, the universal classic monsters and Carrie and a whole, and a whole bunch of other things sort of here and there. But that was the first time that I really keyed into, um, horror as a new novel experience. And it, and it certainly didn't hurt at all that, that the main character was sort of a woman who was, who was trying to <laughs> rescue her cat because I was a, a kid with a single mom who worked all the time. And I really liked the idea of this, of this almost single momish character rescuing who she was responsible for. And so it, it spoke to me as the, as the uh, young child of a single mom, you know, but that was the moment like Giger's design. Oh, Scott storytelling, all of that just resented. And at 10 years old, that was like, I knew, that this was this was my thing and these were my people there's a great it came out quite a few years ago but on a giger is a documentary dark star and oh yeah that, man that that was very cool just to see a day in the life of and his backyard is unreal that I, I know that's the train yeah yeah <laughs> and then he's got a restaurant in oh god it's not Sweet. Is it Sweden? There's, I can't so I think there there's the Giger restaurant that I think is in might be in Sweden, and then there's the Giger bar. There's That's a Giger bar in Japan, mm-hmm. right? There are a couple of these places, but yeah, I mean, I, it's a dream. Like it would be, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be kind of like my mecca to go to the Giger bar, you know. Um, the uh, the funny thing about Alien, there are a couple of there are a couple of things about my experience with Alien. I remember, it, it, you know, I got the, I still have it. It's in it's in my office. I've been carrying this thing around for forty years. <laughs> I have the the twelve inch plastic Kenner Alien, 
action figure. That's cool. Right. And, and uh, when I was a kid, like I remember somebody got me a Chewbacca, like a, a, a 12 inch plastic Chewbacca and I hated it. it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> but this alien, like I would just cling to, like I would sleep with because I just connected with it so much. Yeah, no, I would, I would, uh, I would look in the, in the, uh, our neighbors would have the, um, the HBO guide, you know, and I would look in the guide and, and figure out when they were showing it. And if the showing was at two in the morning, I set my alarm for two in the morning. I'd get up and watch alien and then go back to bed. You know, uh, I saw Wesley Southern post this, but what aliens threes, he's like, aliens three is fucking awesome. I agree. And I don't, it is, there's not a lot of discussion, at least in my circles. I just hear alien and aliens. They're both amazing. But the third one, it's just as cool, man. I like Alien 3 better than I like Aliens, to be honest. No shit. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it captures that the spirit of the original is this um, people who are, are uh, under-equipped and unprepared, you know, for, for an existential threat. Where Aliens, to me, is a lot of fun. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun action picture, but it's a lot of military rah-rah and let's nuke it from orbit. And, <laughs> and everybody seems super competent. And, and in possession of themselves, where Alien and Alien 3 is all about, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do next, but <laughs> uh, I guess I'll try something, right? And so yep. it has more desperation than I think Aliens does, because nobody's got a 40-watt plasma rifle, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> and, and uh, Ripley's just kind of like at that point, she's like war withered and she's she's seen it all. Yeah, no, she's seen it all and she's kind of resigned in the whole thing. And, you know, it's funny because Aliens, you know, the James Cameron thing, the whole last act of that is, is, is Ripley's fault. Like you can you can see, <laughs> you know, in the last act, like she's standing in the egg chamber and she's got Newt. And she's kind of facing off against the queen alien. And there's this exchange that they have where they kind of acknowledge, like, you take your child and leave me my child, my children, and we're good. <laughs> and instead of just walking away with Newt, you know, Ripley just flamethrowers the whole egg, you know, uh, uh, patch. Mm-hmm. And and that's I mean that's the that's what causes the whole shit in the end of the movie like it's it's Ripley's fault. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, you got anything to follow up with that? No, I mean I definitely agree with that. Aliens is that kind of nineteen uh, eighties ish over the top action movie, and it's good. I do love it, but I love it. I mean what what the first one had is that sense of isolation. To me, when you can get that right in a horror movie, like you've got a gem. You you almost have a free pass to do whatever else you want if you can nail down that sense of isolation. And I would argue that there's almost no movie that does it better than the original Alien. No, it's it's so perfect in in almost every way. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine they even do a remake of it. And I've heard that the only one of that era where there was a talk of it, and and the director's like not happening is Jaws and Spielberg. I've heard no. he's like, no, that that ain't that's not. You know, yeah, there are, there are a few sort of perfect movies that. That I don't think you could remake like like Psycho is one of them, and they and the, and they actually remade it. Like Gus Van Zandt remade it <laughs> with Vince. Right? And, yeah, with Vince Vaughn. 
You know, and the funny thing is that the, that all the performances in the remake are better than the performances in the original because the original is so a product of its time of the '60s and this very you know sort of stiff, unnatural acting. But it just doesn't have the same passion and the same vibe as the original. And so, even though like you know Viggo Mortensen and Vince Vaughn are you know and um, and uh, uh, oh who plays. Um, I just forgot her name. The woman who plays I can't remember the sister, but but they're all just like acting circles around everybody who was in the original. But there's something missing. There's a spark missing of life that that isn't there, and the original is so much better. And Jaws, and Alien, you know, I mean, I don't like if you said to me, "Could you remake Star Wars?" I'm like, no. Why <laughs> would you do? Like, why would you do that? It's such a perfect film. You know, and it doesn't need to be remade like it stands on its own. And that's one of those few films that I think you couldn't ever redo in the same way. You know, speaking of Star Wars, I just talked about this with Brian last night. My wife and I just finished The Mandalorian uh, both seasons. Yep. That ended of season two. The whole thing, I'm like, this is a great, for me, in my opinion, that's the greatest thing of Star Wars ever. I love the original <laughs> trilogy, but it's just so badass. And then at the end, I don't want to ruin it, but. No, I've seen the whole, I've seen the whole thing. Yeah, no, I think the Mandalorian is some of the best Star Wars storytelling that they've done in decades because it's centered yeah, around a character. Packed. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, it's action packed, but it's centered around a character instead of centered around um, a loose concept, yeah. right? And so, you know, like like my son, you know, who's ten, he hasn't seen the prequel trilogy um, because I figure he needs to pick that up on the street where it belongs. <laughs> so you know it's like that's garbage and you know you can pick that up with uh you know with like i don't know like a uh, crack pornog- pipe. yeah a crack pipe and you know <laughs> a, a spit scumbag or whatever but you know it's he's seen the original trilogy he's seen the new you know the new films which are hit and miss for yeah. real hit and miss um but the mandalorian was so perfect because it really captured the character so well in the universe um without any jedi i mean that was the best part was that there was no like skywalkers in it yeah well you know <laughs> for the most part <laughs> i mean yeah for the most part right yeah well, until, you're, you're right right until you just spoil it yeah until the very end and then there's that one. but but you know for for nine tenths of two seasons you know it's all just about the mandalorian and the child what the hell's going to happen in season three? I, where do you go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, but it's uh, like it, it, it almost gets a little bit away from space opera too, which is nice. Cause that's, you know, the, we, we saw with the uh, newer trilogy, there's only so much space opera you can do without completely retreading the steps you've already done in the yeah. 1970s. Whereas, I mean, this is, this is borderline a straight up Western and yeah, granted yeah. they got spaceships and they're traveling from planet to planet, but you know, it's, you, you you got uh oh gosh what's his name um from, uh, Pedro Pascal yeah. uh you know he's he's your he's your Clint Eastwood character man man of few words man of action um and yeah I, th- I think it just it really worked uh, and it was, was what the franchise needed to keep from getting too stale oh for real no it ha- it has much more Sergio Leone than it does Akira Kurosawa you know it's it's less operatic and more. Um, and sort of more gritty and, and uh, you know, and, and in that vein of that spaghetti Western style, 
you know, I really liked Solo. I thought that was a great film. And people, you know, they 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 talked about it like it was a complete flop, even though it made money. But yeah, I thought fun. that was a great film too because it it had that same kind of adventure feel, like you know, the original Star Wars, you know, A New Hope. Um, what about Rogue One? With, the end in Darth Vader scene. Rogue One was, I, th- I think, it, Rogue One might be my second favorite Star Wars movie ever. Wow, was you is your first Empire? Empire, right? <laughs> Yeah, because that's and that's a no-brainer, right? That was the first so, and, one I saw in theaters. I was yeah. when they did a reissue in the nineties. Oh, oh shit! Well, so I was, you know, when that came out, I was, what was that? Nineteen seventy-seven. I was seven years old, right? And and that was a time when nobody would come clear out the theater between showings. <laughs> and it was also, you know, the seventies were like my mom didn't give a shit if you know, it's like as long as you're home by dark, it's cool. And so she dropped me off with a movie ticket and enough money to get like a soda and a thing of popcorn and have enough to call her on a payphone when I was done. And she's like, you know, call me when you're done. And I stayed for, you know, in 1977, I stayed in the theater and watched Star Wars like three times in a row. And I spent like six hours in the theater watching that film, you know, and, and it was, it was magical, you know, and it was, and it was a different time. Right. Where it was just like, you could, you just let your kid go. And I don't know, maybe it was neglectful, but, <laughs> but, but I, you know, the, the experience for me was transformative and, and, um, you know, and, and I got that, you know, and, and the, and yeah, Rogue One definitely had that sense of just like pure, uh, excitement and adventure. I loved that film so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brennan, do you want to, lead us into uh, his latest book sir closing costs oh you mean we didn't just invite him on to talk about star wars <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's talk a little bit about <laughs> let's talk about closing costs you got it coming out in a few days although i've already seen people are picking it up at barnes and noble who apparently no, does not yeah. care about release dates anymore <laughs> apparently some stores are just like street dates schmeet dates have yeah. the book you know i saw the it's same cool. thing happening with uh sean cosby's book razor blade tears people are putting that out in june too so (laughs) hey it's your book is in people's hands and it's in people's hands i can't yeah i can't complain it hasn't been pirated and it's in their hands and and they seem to be enthusiastic about it so it's like all right you know uh i'm fine i'm fine with them getting it uh getting it a couple of days early it's all good so with with this one uh I'm going to ask you to give us the, you know, back cover type synopsis. Uh, sure. I, this, this is one that I feel like if I tried to give the synopsis, I would probably talk for about a half an hour trying to give an appropriate <laughs> amount of setup. So I'm, I'm leaving it to you. I mean, yeah, my elevator pitch for this is, you know, a, um, a couple buys their dream home, but it's, but it's so much more than they bargained for because, because other people aren't ready to let go. And their own past is is racing to you know to meet them, and so it's a, a perfect confluence of dreams, nightmares, and broken aspirations all hitting at the same time. Um, you know, and so yeah, the book is about a couple who buys a house, and um, and it's no secret. I mean, it happens in the first five pages of the book. You know, get taken hostage. Um, uh, in the house they bought, uh, and and you know that's the least bad thing that happens. 
<laughs> you know, because it just kind of goes downhill from there as their own past catches up with them and, and other people's um, desires conflict with with their uh, with their survival drive. I love the way you phrase that. That's the least bad thing that happens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we start there and then it just unpeels. Yeah, and no, it, we find out more and it starts with a perfect nightmare. You know, like, oh, my God, there's a, a person in my house who wants to do me harm. And and I mean, you know, if you think of it as just that event, uh, it gets so much worse for them. Personally, I thought the scariest part of the book was that every time uh, when when Nell is reading her book, every time she goes to put it down, instead of using a book uh, bookmark, she just memorizes what page she was on. Um, how's that for sociopathic behavior? It's it's hilarious that you say that. That's hilarious because that's it's funny because Nell and Evan um, are based loosely on me and my wife, and that's exactly what my wife does when she's reading. She just. I'm, I'm she very just, sorry that. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I get it because I'm just. Like, How do you do that? What kind of witch witchcraft is this? But she just looks at the at the page and closes the book, and then she'll come back to it like a week later. Like she'll have all sorts of things to do and doesn't have time to read. And then a week later, she just opens the book and remembers where she was. And I'm like, this is sorcery. <laughs> you know, like, no, we mentioned like earlier I, that the the book is dedicated to uh, Dallas Mayer, yeah. but. Uh, throughout the throughout the story, whenever Nell is reading that book, it, it's a Ketchum book. Is it off season, or am I misremembering that? She's no, she's in in this book. She's reading the last thing, actually the second to last thing he published, which is um, uh, the Secret Life of of Souls. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I thought that was such a beautiful book, and I kind of wanted her to be reading. Um, you know, it was a thing. It was. It was. It was. Jack uh, Jack Ketchum and Lucky McKee, they they wrote they co-wrote it together, and, and I often just talk about it like it was Dallas's last book, but it was really the both of theirs. Um, but it's a beautiful book, and it's just so amazing, and it and it didn't get the life it deserved um, for whatever reason. Like it just wasn't a huge hit, and I and like Red, I felt like if this had been published as a Dallas Mayor book instead of a Jack Ketchum book, it would have been a much bigger you know, breakthrough, but you know, you know, but all of his stuff got published as Jack Ketchum because he had a built in audience. He had a, you know, a huge audience of people who really love his work, who seek it out and they would have found it anyway. But I think, you know, I think publishers are, um, are inclined to go with the known quantity, which is that name. And, you know, so yeah, no, Nell is reading, um, in, in closing costs, she's reading the secret life of souls by Jack Ketchum. So, uh, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that, you know, the the home invasion kicks things into gear, but then we spend most of the novel's runtime jumping here, there, uh, you know, flashbacks and un- unraveling the entire, you know, mystery of why this is mm-hmm. happening and how deep it goes. So I am I, I would love to hear you talk at length about what goes into writing a 300 page book that just has so many moving parts. How do you keep it all straight? Oh. How much do you have going into it versus what unravels on the page? Right. No, it's difficult, man. You know, it's uh, it's funny because the, the first novel I published, Mountain Home, takes place over six hours. And every single chapter has a timestamp, right? So it's like 2.01 p.m., 
2.06 p.m., you know, 2.20 p.m. And it was really hard to write because you have to write a story where each chapter fits into five minutes or two minutes or whatever. And, and you know, you can't have people do anything too wild that, that would take more than that time. And so I'm like, I'm never doing that again. And so this time what I decided to do was I would write a novel that was structured like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and I would have multiple timelines that are happening throughout the book that all converge and you could pick them apart. Like you could take, you know, this chapter out and this chapter out and reorder them so that it was a linear book from start to finish. Right. Um, but I wanted the reader to experience a scene at the moment where it was most emotionally relevant as opposed to when it actually happened. And it was fucking hard, man. It was like, I had, I had to create a, um, I mean, I'm a plotter anyway. I, I like to write outlines you know, but I had to, I had to literally create like a flow chart of, oh, imagine. <laughs> you know, this scene takes place here and this scene takes place here and this one is in the middle and you can't, and, and so that I could look at it visually and see where I was at any moment because, you know, the idea of writing something, you know, because in, you know, the book, I've got it centered around instead of the chapters being labeled by the minute, the hour and the minute, they're labeled by the day or the week after a single event, the closing on their house, you know? And so it starts like 12 weeks after closing. And then we jump to two weeks before closing. And then it's 24 hours before closing. And, you know, and all of these different timelines are sort of converging on a single event. And it was, uh, yeah, it was so hard to keep track of. And I will never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works. You know, I, I hope it works, you know, and, and like I said, I really wanted to do something that, that had that feel like, um, like Pulp Fiction in terms of its timeline, not necessarily in terms of its tone, but you know, this idea of you're learning something when it's important for you to learn it, not when it actually happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you pulled from personal experiences into this one, going back to the <laughs> topic that we talked about. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's, it, I, I had written, so again, it was a response, you know, I'd written a book called Stranded, which is set in the Arctic on a commercial shipping vessel headed toward a, a, a an oil derrick. And when I wrote that book, I didn't know the first thing about commercial shipping, about the oil industry, about Arctic, you know, ecology. And I had to research all of this stuff so that I could get it right. And, and, and it was a ton of work. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a book that doesn't require any research at all. I'm going to set it in my house. I'm going to base the characters on me and my wife, you know, and I won't have to, I won't have to go to, to, you know, to the library or to Google for a goddamn thing. And, and it ends up being one of those moments where you're like, it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? Because what you do, what you end up doing is you end up spending six, eight hours in your office thinking about the worst possible thing that could possibly, you know, that could happen to you. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and then my wife would come home from work and, and I'd come out to make her a cocktail because I'm a good 1950s housewife like that. I, you know, and I would, I would come out to make her like a, you know, a housewife. Yeah, exactly. I come out to make her a gimlet or, you know, a sidecar or something. And, and, and I'm still in the headspace of we've got to escape the basement, you know, 
and and how dare you put your hands on my wife sort of thing and yeah. it was yeah it ended up being a really hard book to write because i'm because i i did the opposite of what i had done before which was a really distanced book from my experience and this one was fully uh, uh, informed by my real life. So the characters are really into wine, which is something that my wife and I are uh, love to do. They live in our neighborhood in a house that's almost exactly like our house. And, you know, and so, so much of my own, my own, um, life went into this book that, um, they feel a really great personal connection to it. You know, it's, it's, you're not, you know, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to pick your favorite children, but this might be one of my favorite things <laughs> that I've done, you know, because it is, uh, really, uh, uh, a sort of a child of, of my own experience and, and, and my own anxieties. I, I feel like this is kind of like, um, you know, when, when Stephen King wrote Pet Cemetery, he almost didn't publish it because it was just too personal. It was too scary. Mm-hmm. And and this book feels like that. Like it, it's so scary to me that you know. Um, but again, it's like it's it's one of those things. Like if I want you to feel it on the page, I got to feel it on the keyboard. And so I went there, and and uh, you know it'll probably be um, you know uh, thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of therapy. But uh, if you dig the book, it's worth it. <laughs> I I can completely empathize with that. I. For, for whatever reason, uh, whatever inspiration, I wrote a home invasion story recently. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I think I wrote it over the course of about a week. I hated every fucking minute of it. Uh, I hated editing it. I, you know, hated rereading it before I submitted it anywhere. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good story. I don't know, but I fucking hate it. And it's uh, for the same reasons. <laughs> Uh, the geography of the house, the geography of the outside of, you know, everything that's happening is yeah. based on, you know, um, is based on my house and my neighborhood. Uh, it, you know, it's a husband, a wife and two kids, you know, the same makeup I have. It's you. And I think that's what needs to happen in order for to, to really allow you to make the audience feel that fear. You have well, to think- feel it first. Yeah, no, I think that's it, you know, is that is that a home invasion book isn't something that you can necessarily research. I mean, there are lots of home invasions in the news and, you know, and I reference a couple in the book. Like I have Nell in the basement thinking like she's never she's never heard of a news story about a home invasion that ended with people living. And this and this is part of her fear, right, is that it's always like they found, the, you know, they found the bodies of X, Y and Z after. Right. Um, and so, you know, you do you do end up going to those really um, sort of dark places to conceive the story. And and when you're trying to create verisimilitude, I mean, you don't really have to do a lot of research to think of how to create fear in a home. You live in a home. Right. And so the natural response is to set it in your own is is in your own environment, because that's what you know best. And that's what you're most protective of. Um you know, so it is. Um, so this is. I love home invasion stories as a concept. I I kind of uh, wish that there were more of them, and at the same time, I'm thankful that there aren't. 
<laughs> right? Because they're so intense and so extreme and, and create such an anxiety in me that it's like yeah. when, they're, when they're good, they're good and I've had enough for a while. In that vein, I, I think that uh, I, I wouldn't call it a great movie, but The Strangers always got under my skin. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a scene in there where uh, I haven't seen it in years, but somebody's just in the kitchen, just going about their business. And one of those creepy ass guys with the bag over their heads just kind of like <laughs> walks into the kitchen, just stands there in the background for about 30 seconds while she's chopping vegetables and then just walks out of the frame. And, 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 you know, nothing happens in that scene, and it's still so incredibly but it's effective. A, but it's a violation, right? Exactly. I mean, just to have a stranger in your house that you don't know is there observing you, it's the, it's the, it's the process of being beheld and being transformed from a subject, from a thing that, um, that is self-possessed and witnessing the world, to an object which is possessed and witnessed by something exterior, you know, that's a transformation from a, an identity to a thing. And so, yeah, the, the, the idea of, of someone being in a room with you and looking at you and not doing a thing is absolutely terrifying because it, it changes the nature of what you are, not who you are, but what you are. Are you an object or are you a person? And when that person's in the room looking at you and you don't see them and then they choose not to do anything, you become an object. Right. Yeah. And it's, absolutely terrifying yeah i've had a nightmare where i saw someone couldn't make out any details to the shadow and uh it still creeps me out that was years ago man um i got a kind of a jokey question did you it, it's serious at the same time if that makes sense uh did you bounce ideas off of paul tremblay for this <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because we started writing the book. We started writing our two books at the exact same time. <laughs> like, I remember I was talking to Paul because I'm friends with Paul and, and we were hanging out and, and I'm like, so what are you working on next? And he's like, oh, I'm going to do this home invasion novel. And, and I was like, fuck, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm doing the same thing. Like, shit, man, we can't do this at the same time. And then it turned out, you know, that his publication schedule was faster than mine. I sold mine later and it, and it all works out. But we didn't compare notes at all, but we did kind of like commiserate and go, yeah, this, you know, this is a provocative idea. This scares me, you know, and um, but it, it was funny because I've had this experience before. I wrote, you know, I wrote the book about the kids coming back to life. And, and at the same time, that um, that I had had just sold my book. Uh, Craig DeLuey announced that Simon Schuster was going to be publishing his book, um, "Suffer the Children," which was which was about a very similar concept of dead children who inexplicably come back to life. <laughs> and I had that same I had that ex exact same experience where I was like, "Oh come on, you got to be kidding me, man!" Right? <laughs> and and so I had a conversation with Craig, and he was just like, "Don't worry, they're going to be completely different books because we're completely different people, right?" That's and true. and you know, and it's not like this is a really amazingly original concept that nobody could have ever thought about, like kids coming back to life. And and he was absolutely right. And so the books are completely different. And and mine and Paul's books are completely different. Yep. <laughs> um, but it was, it was one of those moments where it was just like, you know, Paul tells me he's working on a home invasion of what I mean, you gotta be kidding me. Cause this came after the Craig DeLouis thing. And I was just like, can't I come up with a single thing that's original? <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you guys seem like you're real. I don't know, but you guys seem like you're pretty much 
much best friends. I, I love it. You guys are both very seems like prolific and you're both, you know, good at what you do in the same We're industry. Good friends, yeah. No, we, we play role playing games together and you know, and occasionally get a hangout if we you know, and not so much in the last fifteen months, but right. Um yeah, but no, Paul's great. And, you know, it's fun because it's uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty unique experience to get to be friends with like your favorite writer because he's he's uh, he's probably my second favorite writer after Cormac McCarthy, mm. right? And so and so it is exciting to just kind of like you know I imagine other people would think about like what if I was friends with Stephen King and that's kind of the experience I get with Paul, like <laughs> oh shit, you know. I, I love this guy's writing, and and whenever he puts out a book, I put down everything in my life to read his book, and we get to drink beer and play, you know, and play D and D together. That's awesome. <laughs> to, some, to some extent, not in person until Scares this year, or later this month. But um, I'm like that with Ronald Kelly. I just we me and him were just talking this morning. I'm like, I still can't believe we're friends. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like he wrote so many good books. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It's funny, you know, and, and, and Paul is so great. You know, he blurbed closing costs and, and he seems to, you know, and he's a, and he's a big fan of the book. And so it's like, we, we like each other's work, which, you know, which is so much, uh, so much fun to, you know, to sort of share with a person whose work you respect and, and that. So yeah, it's, uh, 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 I'm, I'm not sure what else to say. Like, I have no complaints about being friends with Paul Trembley. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a humble, I love that. It's a humble bag, you know? <laughs> I, I love that picture that you posted recently. You're on, like, a milk oh. crate. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, I'm 5'11", and he's, like, 6'4", and I'm just like, I want a picture where we're just kind of, like, at the same eye level, and so I had to pull out a step stool. <laughs> you know, stand on the step stool, you know, and uh, and I took this selfie and, and of course staged it so Izzy Izzy Lee was there too, so she could take the the picture of me standing on the step stool because it's only funny if you get to see the behind the scenes picture. It oh wait that was a, I saw another picture it was like you guys and Eric Larocca and oh yeah yeah same night yeah yeah that's awesome that's like a big group picture of amazing writers that's fantastic well, we had a we had a nice uh, we had a nice um, barbecue in the backyard it was yeah i think it was me and eric laraca izzy paul and uh, chris golden and and we just kind of like hung out in the backyard and grilled meat and drank wine and you know and, and talked shit it was good man not that i would be invited but it stays like it's moments like that where i still wish i lived in bridgewater <laughs> <laughs> right no it is it's you know it's it's funny because if you had told me you know, the 15-year-old me who, like, dreamed of being a writer and, you know, and was, like, uh, fucking shoplifting, uh, you know, Del Abyss books, <laughs> right? Um, and, it, you know, that, that someday, you know, you won't just get to have books on a shelf, but you'll get to be friends and peers with, with really great writers. Mm. I would have just been like, you know, th the hell you say. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like that's completely outside of the realm of possibility. And, you know, and me today, I'm like living that. And I wish I could go back to the 15 year old me and just sort of be like, you know, keep doing what you're doing because it's going to work out. That's fantastic. Right. Brandon, Brandon, I'm hogging the air, buddy. Why don't you jump in? Would it, Bracken, would it be cruel to ask you what your favorite uh, Tremblay book is? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, it's not it's not cruel again you know you know you're not supposed to you're not supposed to pick your favorite children but none of those are my children they're his yeah. um 
So probably my favorite uh, Tremblay book would be um, uh, Head Full of Ghosts. There you go. You know, <laughs> because, because it ties so much into, it ties so much into uh, Shirley Jackson, that, who I love, and, and that sort of vibe that I really love it. But like I just finished, I just, it, you know, it's, it's funny because I got, a, I got an advanced reader's copy of Survivor Song uh, last spring. And then the shutdown happened. And, oh, and I started result of the shutdown. Yeah, exactly. And Paul, Paul <laughs> sort of like, you know, caused this, but what happened was I started reading this and I get like, I get like 40 pages in and there's this chapter where this doctor is chatting, you know, in, in uh, texts with her physician's assistant and a nurse. And they're complaining about not having enough PPE and no training to deal with pandemics. And it was just too real. And I couldn't, and I couldn't do it, you know, like in, in March of, of 2020. Mm. Um, and then, you know, and then the paperback came out and, um, and, and one of my favorite things about Paul's paperbacks is that he always adds that PS section at the back of the paperback. Like, I, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm such, I'm, I'm a stupid fanboy, right? So I get arcs <laughs> and then I buy the hardcover. And then I buy the soft cover, right? Because all of them offer something different to me. But but the the PS paperback came out. It had all these liner notes at the back, like, oh, here's all of the things that I was thinking about when I wrote the book. And I'm like, well, shit, I can't read the liner notes if I haven't read the book. <laughs> so so I sat down like two weekends ago, and I read the whole book in a single weekend. Wow. So a, cl- a close second to me after... A Head Full of Ghosts would be Survivor Song because it's just such a perfectly executed book. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things where at the moment that it came out, I wasn't ready for it. But, you know, after after 15 months and, and vaccinations and a reopening and, you know, and, and, uh, and sort of a breath of life as it should be, not, you know, entirely as it was before, but um, a semi return to normal, then I was able to, to actually consume the book and I just tore it up. I, I wonder if it was harder for people like you and I, I'm on the South coast of Massachusetts, right outside mm-hmm. of fall river. Okay. If it was harder for us to read it because we're reading about, you know, real local locations, yeah. you know, not just a hypothetical hospital on the other side of the country. Um, <laughs> But what what odd timing with that one, you know? So no, strange. It was, it was super present. Like people say it was prescient, but it was for me. It was really present. Like the things that I was reading in that book were the things that I was experiencing right now. Like friends of mine who are, um, you know, ER doctors and immunologists who are like, I I'm double gowning because I don't have adequate PPE and you know and and yeah exactly reading about locations that. I've been to because I've been to Paul's house or whatever. And I've been in that town and on that street and, and, uh, and, and yeah. And it, and it feels different than reading a book set in Los Angeles. Right. Where, where I really don't know the layout and the geography and, you know, and all that. So no, I think it, it probably is scarier to, to New Englanders and, and Massachusetts residents, especially. So Speaking of being locals, one of my uh, best friends, um, he lives in the same town as Paul, 
and that mm-hmm. part that he writes Devil's Rock and I'm like, oh, I've been there a lot. It's, uh, it's a little <laughs> creepy, man. <laughs> I wanted to talk about, it actually ties in nicely, about being in New England. It sounds like such a corny question, but I don't know what kind of answer you're going to give. So being a writer from New England, um, what does that mean to you? Are I actually don't know. Are you bo- Were you born in this area? I was, yeah, no, I grew up in Western Mass. Oh, okay. So I grew up in, in Amherst and Sunderland. And then when I was about 10, my family moved to Southern California. We moved to San Diego. Right. And, and it was a long process of kind of returning to New England, but I ended, eventually did it in my 30s. Um, yeah. And it was and it was part of, you know, we moved to California. I ended up living in Idaho and Colorado and and, uh, and I never felt at home anywhere but in New England. And so part of writing about New England, you know, because every almost everything I write is set in New England. And part <laughs> of that, part of that for me is a sense of belonging and a sense of of this place as character. Like I really connect with this place um, in a way that, you know, I guess my first book was set in Idaho. Um, and I connected with that place as a place of anxiety because I never felt like I belonged there. And so when I wanted to write a book that was filled with all sorts of anxiety and, and sort of outsider uh, fear, uh, it seemed natural. Um, but everything I do now, yeah, is almost entirely set in New England. And it is because I feel like the place is a character and the place is something that, um, that kind of informs my, my attitudes about the world, about my life, about my family. And, and uh, you know, it's funny. So I've, I've set uh, uh, closing costs is set in a fictional town called Ripton. And I've set a few things in Ripton now. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the idea of Ripton, Ripton, Massachusetts, because I didn't create it completely all all on my own. Uh, I'm not. Okay, so what happened was in the 80s, there was a a local uh, uh, state senator who was was, uh, upset at the provincialism of Boston politicians who couldn't recognize that anything existed out of, you know, 495. Like you know, central and western Massachusetts, <laughs> and so what he did was he created a town. There was a Ripton, Vermont, but no Ripton, Massachusetts. So he created Ripton, Massachusetts, and he pre- and he presented legislation to the state legislature to fund like roads and police and you know and all sorts of infrastructure spending on Ripton, Massachusetts. And it just got rubber stamped. It just got passed because, yeah, okay, fine. Ripton, Massachusetts gets, you know, X amount of dollars for civic infrastructure. And, and it was his way of pointing out, like, you guys don't even know what you're doing because <laughs> there is no such place. You know, and he was, and he was a, you know, he was a, he was a unique breed of, of, of honest politicians. So he put all that money into escrow and he didn't keep it, but he returned it, but he made it a big point. Like you guys don't even know what you're legislating because there is no such thing. And so when, and so I remember the story and I remember being really amused by it. And I was thinking like, I want to set, um, you know, stories in a place where I can kind of create the geography and the, and the street structure and all this stuff without having people write me angry letters, you know, about like, Oh, you know, fuck you. There's no, you know, there's no Ketchum street in Amherst. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, fine. And so, you know, and so I remember the story and I went looking and I'm like, somebody, there have to be like a dozen novels set in Ripton, Massachusetts. There isn't one. 
Wow. So I just so I just took it. It's my it's it's my it's, it's my Castle Rock now. You know, it's like Stephen King took Castle Rock, Colorado, and put it in Maine. And I'm just like, <laughs> fine, fuck it. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Ripton, Massachusetts. That that belongs to me now. Dude, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. I've never heard of that before. That's really funny, and it's yeah. it's not really surprising <laughs> that politicians would just uh, kind of bullshit and try to fake it until they make it. You know. Yeah, it's just like, you guys, you know, you don't even know. And so he just, yeah, he tries to make a point by showing, by making them do something so stupid that they can't deny they did it. Brandon, you got anything on this before uh, we jump to the next topic? I I really like your point on, you know, writing in Massachusetts being, or writing in New England being, you know, part of the part of the character and almost more comfortable. I, I completely agree with you. It's just, it's... I, I'll, I'll set things here by default. I uh, my second book I I wrote I I put in Arizona, and the whole time it was kind of like a, why did I do that? But there, there's an air of the characters having like you know what the fuck are we doing here? Let's get out of here. Um. So and I and I and I think that's you know it it, it definitely it works within the story. Whereas anything I set in Massachusetts, it's just like okay. I have a a comfortable, familiar backdrop. I know, you know, I know the layouts for the most part. Even if I'm making them up, I have an idea of somewhere I'm basing it on. Um, and it's, you know, I've I've lived here all my life, and I probably will continue to do so. It's just <laughs> this is home. Yeah. No, I get it. You know, it's it's I I lived for years in Colorado, and I could set a story easily in, in you know in Colorado Springs or Denver or whatever. And but I just didn't feel that kind of belonging and connection to a place in Colorado that I feel here. And so, you know, for me, writing about New England is like writing about myself, like it's writing about my blood, where writing about Colorado is a place that you lived. You know, and that's no slight to Colorado. Like, I loved it. It was a beautiful place to live, and it was fun, and it was easy to live there because the climate is really um, nice. But, um, but yeah, in terms of you know, culture, geography, you know, history, it wasn't where I belonged. I mean, just a few authors of the past, the name, uh, you got Nathaniel Hawthorne, Dr. Seuss, mm-hmm. John Cheever. I'm just going to leave it at those three because that's a big list. The literary tradition here is, you know, is, is long and, you know, and deep and, and uh, I mean, I'm proud to be a negligible figure in it. You know, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know what? I actually got a few more. Benjamin Franklin technically is a writer, um, and Lovecraft, Rhode Island, um, Edgar Allan Poe, Boston, and uh, Cotton Mather. He, uh, the dude from the Salem Witch Trials. Yep. He wrote like 200 books or something like some crazy number like that and had a connection with uh, Franklin as well. So, yeah, there's a long history. Yeah, I love I love Poe's relationship to 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 Boston because he, you know, he was um, he was originally from here and then ended up transplanting to uh, uh, to Baltimore. Um, and he had such a contentious relationship with the literary figures in Boston. He called, you know, he called like a Longfellow and, you know, and those contemporaries, he called them the frog pondians. 
you know, because he wanted to write like genre literature, although at the time there wasn't, you know, nobody thought of it as genre literature, but he wanted to write, you know, crime stories and horror stories and, you know, and, and Longfellow and these guys were like, oh, why don't you write, you know, about, you know, grass and pastoral things. And he's just like, fuck you, I'm going to drink more gin. <laughs> Frog Pondians, like, and I just, yeah, I love how, how antagonistic he was toward it. It's, it's funny because, you know, because I love it entirely, but I also love his idea of rebelling against it. In no way am I trying to come off and salt him, but that is from my observation, like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't love a thing unless you kind of also hate it a little bit too. Yeah. I mean, you, know? you kind of intimidated me when I first uh interacted with you like five years ago on facebook you were like very you look like a dude that could beat the shit out of me and you're (laughs) very loud and i was like i don't want to piss him off (laughs) (laughs) i'm uh you know it's funny because if you ask if you ask my my you know my close friends like they're all like oh he's a super teddy bear you know and and i'm and i'm like quit fucking ruining our reputation you dicks but That's I mean, but they're not wrong. You know, I, uh, I tend to, I tend to, to like people more than I just like them. I gotcha. Yeah. That's, um, there is some one. people, dislike. I mean, there are some real assholes out there. Well, <laughs> no, I, I've, I've said it to some newer writers on the show. I'm like, uh, not, not everyone's going to like everyone. I mean, I don't like yeah. everyone in yeah. the, the industry. I straight up don't like some of them. They don't like me. It's fine. Yeah. No, you don't have to, you know. Absolutely. And you know what? While we're on the New England subject, I would like it if if you would like to talk about Nikon, because I know that you got quite quite a role with that. And tell us, actually, you know what? What is it about? Because not everyone knows. So Nikon is uh, is kind of an amazing thing. And and part of the reason that I'm a a horror writer at all is uh, I remember I was – I was looking for, I had run out of, of we're, we're circling back. I had run out of things that Jack Ketchum had written that I had, that I hadn't read. Oh, okay. And so I was searching, I was like, is there anything I've missed? Like, is there something I've missed? And I remember finding a story that I had read, but I had forgotten I had read it called Sundays. And it's a beautiful story about, you know, about this guy who um, his father kills these squirrels, but he hates that, you know, that he kills these squirrels and it, and it causes a rift between him and his father. It's this very sort of personal story, but it was published um, for the first time in a book called The Big Book of Nikon. And when I found this, I was like, what the heck is a Nikon? Right. So I start searching this up. And what I found was. A, uh, a an interview with 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 Jack Ketchum, where he said, you know, I get invited to a lot of conferences every year, but the only one I ever pay for myself is Nikon. Oh wow! Right, and he was just kind of like, you know, this is a special thing. So I was like, okay, maybe I need to look into this because up until that time, I had been going to, you know, conventions and writer conferences, or whatever, but they were mostly. Uh, literary focus, like I was going to Muse in the Marketplace in Boston, and and um, and I had been to Thriller Fest in New York, and, and I was like, I really, I need to find something that's more sort of genre based than literary, and so I was like, uh, I'll try Nikon, I'll try this thing, right? Because um, because at the very least, at the v- the worst case scenario, 
I'll get to meet Jack Ketchum and sort of get to say to, you know, one of my literary heroes, thank you. Right. And then I go and it was amazing. Like, you know, I was, I was sort of, you know, this is the thing I, I ended up going the 30, the 30th year that they had it. Right. And so there are all these people who've been going for years and years and years. And I show up out of the blue and I don't have anybody who's introducing me because I just found it on my own. And still people just kind of like brought me in and they were like, Oh, who are you? I remember I had a moment. I don't get starstruck easy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, cause I used to live in Southern California. I used to live in LA and I'm right. used to seeing, <laughs> right. And I'm used to seeing famous people. And so I was just like, you know, this isn't a thing, but I remember I was standing at me, my very first Nikon. I've been there for maybe like two hours. And this dude comes up to me and he sticks out his hand and he goes, Hey, I'm Skip. Who are you? <laughs> right. And I'm like, hi, I'm Bracken. And then I realized like, I haven't seen a picture of John Skip since like the back of the cleanup. Right. Or the scream. And that, yeah, exactly. And that's who's introducing himself to me, like asking who I am. And I had a complete moment of like fanboy paralysis. I was like, holy shit, you're John Skip. It took me years to overcome that. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, but it was a great moment. It was sort of a hundred percent representative of what that con is like. It's like somebody like John Skip will come up to a complete stranger with no idea what their background is, what their publishing credits are, why they're there, and just be like, hey, man, it's good to meet you. Who are you? That's awesome. I know. It was great. It was so great. And so, you know, over the years, I haven't missed one since, right? Um, You know, I've been going for the last 10 years. And, um, and, And every year it just feels more like a family and more like, um, you know, a sort of a collection of, of people who've really badly missed each other over the last year, as opposed to a collection of people who were all interested in the same business. Hmm. Right. Um, Oh yeah. Cause it's called Nikon camp. Yeah. We call it camp Nikon and it does. It feels like, no, it feels like a combination between a summer camp and a family reunion, you know, because, um, you know, because everyone's just so excited to see everybody. And, and, uh, yeah. And I just absolutely, uh, it's one of my favorite times of year. I like it better than Christmas. Wow. Right. Uh, how, how do you get into that? Because isn't it only like 300 people? Yeah, it's capped at, we cap enrollment at 250. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah, it used to be 200, but we've just been able to expand it to 250. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's kind of a get in quick because it fills up. <laughs> and especially on like anniversary years, like, you know, 20, it was supposed to be 2020, but it'll end up being 2022 because we've had to postpone it for two years because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 2022 will be the 40th anniversary. Wow. And, you know, and so um, people who haven't come for several years, hopefully will, you know, will end up coming back. And we're almost, I think at this moment, we're almost already sold out. We've been almost sold out for a year or more. Um, and so it is, it's a thing about timing. You know, you just have to kind of, um, you know, buy your membership early. Uh, but the great part of it is, is, you know, you show up and, and people give you the benefit of the doubt. They don't imagine that your first inclination is to, network or use this as a stepping stone they imagine that you're 
intent is to have the exact same good time that they have. And, and, and we talk about it. You know, there are people who get it and don't get it. And the people who get it are the people who come and they make real friendships, right? And they don't expect anything out of them. And they keep coming year after year after year. Mm-hmm. And the people who don't get it are the people who think, well, I'm going to go there and I'm going to meet, you know, uh, Chris Golden. And he's going to introduce me to his agent and then I'll have, you know, published contract with, with St. Martin's. Right. Right. And those are the people that, that ever come back because it doesn't ever work out like that. You know, it's, uh, you know, Chris isn't a tool you can, you know, you can use to further your career. He's a real person and, you know, um, and it's the same with everybody who attends. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's fun because it is, it's also a place because it's, it's almost entirely industry professionals, you know, uh, editors and writers and very few, although there are a bunch of people who do come who are fans i don't want to say just fans because of course fans are the, the reason you get to write books in the first place right <laughs> like readers you know no one would be a writer if there weren't readers mm-hmm. um but most of the attendees are are creators or or editors or something like that and and so you kind of do get a take off your armor a little bit and 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 be yourself as opposed to a con like thriller fest which is a lot of fun but because it's a more professional con you kind of have to be more on like a persona. Oh, I get that. that. That's something that I uh, I would love to go to one day. Um, Todd Keeslin talked about the first time he went, and he met Joe uh, uh, Joe Hill, and oh, yeah. he was so <laughs> nervous. It just I would love to be there to see that experience. I, you know, I mean, it's 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 funny. I want to say that I was there for that because I, you know, because I'm friends with Todd and Joe and, and I kind of remember like watching um, Todd, like uh, start to vibrate at a frequency that I was afraid he might fall through a solid object, you know? And, uh, and that had to be around Joe, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny because meeting a person like, like Joe Hill is weird because of course, um, you know, that, that guy is, he's cool and he's, and he's sweet and he's, and he's down to earth, but he just kind of never gets to relax because everybody always wants something from him. And so there's always a person, no matter how chill you are, there's always a person sort of waiting on the side to, you know, hand him their book. Um, and so it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to interact with Joe just because he's reached that level of, of fame where, um, where he's got to be more on guard than everyone else around you. Right. Yeah, I, I hate hearing that, you know, and it is, it's, it is a bummer because, because he, I think he had a great time at Nikon. We had a great time having him at Nikon, but it's just not a thing that he could come to every year because, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's, uh, uh, because it's odd to be, you know, a guy like Joe Hill out in public, I think, you know, <laughs> I could have, Oh man. That that's like a great place to be in, but it's also a uh, shit place yeah. to be in. Well, you know, you, you think about you think about levels of fame, and and I go, you know, like, you know, Stephen King doesn't go to anything anymore, and and part of the reason is I, you know, I heard a story once where he was staying in this hotel at a con- at a convention, and he was on like the fourteenth floor, and somebody like scaled down the balconies. Oh my god. And like jumped on his balcony and was knocking on you know the, the sliding glass door on the 14th floor 
you know, of his hotel room and it, and it just scared the shit out of him as it would any sane person. Like that's a, that's giving me anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's the, that's the thing. It's like, you just can't, you know, if you're Stephen King, I just don't think you can, you can go to a con and have the same kind of experience that everyone else has. And so, you know, everyone dreams of being like Stephen King, rich, Stephen King famous, but I'm not sure anybody really wants that. Right. Because it, because it it, it 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 involves such a radical change in the way you're able to interact with your peers and, and your fans and your friends and all that. Yeah, that's true, man. You know what? Just two names that I think would probably be a nice spot would be uh, Jonathan Mayberry or Joe mm-hmm. Lansdale. Like, they're huge. Right. Oh, yeah. But, like, for people that aren't like us, I think the general public probably, even Mallerman, I've said it before, I don't think the general public at this point would know who they were and right. who they, what they're connected to. It's not yeah, like and it's you know it's funny because you, you two out of three of those guys are are dead ass killers. Yeah. So I think they <laughs> you know <laughs> you know uh, uh, Joe Lansdale and Jonathan Mabry are both like really accomplished martial artists. So I think they're yep. you know sort of more possessed of their of their surroundings, but. But even then, like, you don't want to be the guy who killed a fan because he reached into a messenger bag to hand you his manuscript and you thought it was a gun. But (laughs) the legacy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, uh, completely random, not really happened sort of memory. But, uh, you know, um, you know, but yeah, I think, you know, I think I think Joe and, and John both are in a state in their careers where they're where they're huge and they're really popular, but they're not so globally famous that they can't go out and enjoy themselves in public, you know, which, which is a nice place to be. And like, I would really, I mean, I, I talk about, about Joe Lansdale all the time as sort of being my, um, you know, kind of like my, um, um, model of, of success. Not, uh, not in terms of like, um, I guess it, totally in terms of when Joe puts out a book, if he puts out a crime novel or a horror novel or a you know comedy farce like you know Bubba Hotep or something you know completely different from all of that, no one says, "Oh my God, Joe Lansdale's doing that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? They just go, "Ooh, a new Joe Lansdale." Right. And that's exactly what I kind of want is like if I write a book about dead kids coming back to life or a science fiction book about crossing, you know, uh, 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 alternate realities in the Arctic or a home invasion novel. I don't want anybody to to say like, oh, I don't know. I really like him as a science fiction writer. I want people to go, oh, new Brecken McLeod novel. And it's and it's super arrogant to think that I might be at that stage because I'm sure I'm I'm not, and I've got a whole bunch of different readers who are you know relatively impressed or or de- depressed by what I'm putting out. But, but yeah, Joe is at that kind of level of 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 success in his work where where he can do anything he wants and people dig it because they understand that a Joe Lansdale novel is a Joe Lansdale novel, no matter what he's writing about, and that's my aspiration. That's right. A great, that's a great aspiration. And you know what? They're all really I don't know Joe, but from what I hear from his friends like you, him, uh I do know John and uh, uh 
talk to Lansdale a decent amount. They're all very nice people. Yeah, they have yeah, not let it get to their head. No, he's a sweetheart. You know, I tell people, you know, the 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 secret to to really being successful in this industry is being kind and authentically friends with people, right? Um, because people can smell a phony, right? And they know who's friends with them because they want something, right? And so, you, so, you know, if, if, you, if you become friends with, you know, random name out of the air, like with Josh Mallerman, because you think he might produce your movie, uh, chances are that's not going to be a real authentic relationship that turns into anything. Mm-hmm. But if you're friends with Josh Mallerman, you know, you never know. He might introduce you to somebody or, I mean, I got the, you know, the, the Stranded book uh, ended up being a thing because, um, because an editor at Tor came to uh, Chris Golden and said, hey, do you know anybody who would be interested in writing a, you know, a, th- a, a thriller set in the Arctic, you know, something kind of reminiscent of the thing? And instead of saying, yeah, Tim Levin, he said, oh, you should talk to Bracken McLeod. Right. And and 100 percent of that was just because he likes my writing. He understands he knows who I am and he knows I'm a, uh, a guy who's not going to fuck up his reputation by being a dick to this editor. <laughs> right. And, yep. you know, it wasn't a favor that he paid to me. Right. Because it was early in our friendship, early in our career. It was just it was a matter of I've never asked him. I had never asked him for anything. We were honest friends and he honestly liked my work. And, and that's the way you I think you become successful in this business is is you um, is you behave like a, a good human being. You make real friendship with people without any expectation of returns on it other than friendship. Yeah. And people like working with, you know, with their friends and, you know, and it'll turn to something good, but you can't game that system. You know, you can't make friends with people with the expectation that they're going to introduce you to people because, uh, like I said, they'll sniff it out. Yeah, absolutely. You can just feel it. Sniff it yeah. out. You know, I agree, man. Yeah. That, you know what? Um, I think that's a good place to lead towards the uh, end of the show questions. So there's a few of them. And the first one is, what are you reading, Bracken? Oh, um, I just finished today, this morning, because I was so I was so into it that I couldn't wait until after work. I had to put off work to finish it. I finished reading uh, Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. Oh, I haven't read that one yet, but I've heard oh, it. God, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's un, uh, unashamedly a riff on, uh, and it's openly a riff on the Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Uh, which right? one's that? That's the one where, um, where the power goes out and, and everyone starts to wonder why the power has gone out on this street, on Maple Street. And then one person's car will start. And everyone turns to them and says, you know, what do they know? What kind of thing are they into Mm -hmm. that they have power and we don't? And so the whole neighborhood turns on these people just because they happen to have a car that starts. (laughs) And, you know, and at the end of the Twilight Zone episode, of course, it's aliens that are that are manipulating everything. And they're like, look, this is how you conquer Earth. You just you just manipulate people's insecurities and fears and they'll turn on each other. (laughs) Right. And it's a 
And it's a brilliant episode of, of the Twilight Zone. And Sarah, yeah, and Sarah just, I mean, she straight up, like, names the street in her book Maple Street. And, you know, and uh, and has a, and has characters in there that are named the Sterlings as opposed to the Sterlings. Yeah, right. But she's riffing on this idea of a neighborhood will tear itself apart based on suspicion and anxiety and and the desire to keep secrets hidden. And it's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I read it. I read it this weekend. I started it on Saturday and I finished it this morning. Hmm. Um, you know, we're talking on a Monday morning or a Monday evening, I guess. And, uh, and I can't say enough good things about that book. The, um, the other one, I guess it was survivor song that I had read the weekend before. Like I had just read that one. I'm about to pick up, uh, red widow by Alma Katsu. Hmm. Um, which sounds, sounds like, an, yeah, it sounds like an amazing book. And I loved the hunger, you know, her book about the, the Donner party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this one, this one comes from her personal experience as a, as a, uh, as a CIA and, and national security analyst. So it's like a spy thriller. Um, but she's a wonderful writer whose work I love, but, but yeah, uh, good neighbors by Sarah Langan. You got to pick it up. It's so good. That sounds really great. Uh, and if I were to if I were to recommend a particular thing, I don't normally plug individual business, but I'd say get the the book club copy from Barnes and Noble. Okay, because it has a whole extra exclusive essay at the end by Sarah about all of her influences and what she was trying to do in writing the novel, and it's oh, wow. like a it's a wonderful behind the scenes look into the into the mind of an artist creating a thing and it's a hundred percent worth um you know the the trip out to Barnes and Noble to get the book because the extra material that's in that edition is uh, is phenomenal that's really cool Brandon um, normally I ask you next but I will wait for you to go last this time sir that's all right that's fine. Uh, so I am reading Cena. I got Cena. Pl- I got two chat books today. Speaking of Joe Lansdale, uh, The Hunger Snow. Um, I am pumped. This is by Deathside Press. Audio listeners, uh, I'm holding up the book very close. It's got stitching in it, which I thought was really neat. And it's 227 of 500. I've never bought a chat book before but i got two at the same time the other one's by cena palio they're nice they're two of my favorite authors and this one's called snow white shattered coffin together they're under 80 pages um so quick reads right there but yeah uh talking to lansdale we had him on two weeks ago we could legitimately talk to him for like 12 hours straight and we weren't oh yeah i mean that guy that guy's got so many Nuggets of wisdom, and he produces so much. It's it's inspiring. He's he's legit a guru. Yeah, like like I would seek him out in a cave, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to learn the secrets of the universe because uh, because the guy's got insights into writing that are uh, that are beyond amazing. There are two guys that I talked with that. I feel that way. It's Joe and Ronald Kelly. They're both of the same in the eighties and they still produce a crazy amount. And, uh, then you get, you know, you got your Keynes Mayberry and 
than guys like you, Tremblay, and Christopher Golden. So it's it's really nice to see this as a younger writer. I, I'll speak for Brent here that it's possible to do what we want. So that's yeah. really cool. Brennan, what are you reading? Uh, I am in the about in the middle of uh, John C. Foster's Rooster, uh, which comes out, I think, actually on July 20th as well uh, from Grey Matter Press. And it is a first person, uh, very noirish. Um, uh, tells the story of a hitman going through some really wild shit um it's a lot of fun it's a it's a pretty crazy ride and uh i'm i'm enjoying it and i'm looking forward to talking to john about it in a few weeks i haven't i i haven't read that one yet i love john's work i really loved mr white i thought that was a great book you know sort of this good things about it this wonderful mix of like spy thriller and supernatural horror um that i hadn't seen before john john's a great writer so yeah no i'm really excited about rooster that's awesome Oh, excuse me. Listeners, uh, if you are interested in checking out the website at headspace.com, we have a store tab where you can check out merchandise with my mug on a coffee mug or a mask and so forth. Check that out if you're interested. Also, in reading some reviews and articles from uh, some guests. I don't know what the title is, Brennan. I never say it right. What is it? Just like guest article? It, it, it literally says articles. You click okay. on the menu, there's a tab that says articles. You go to the articles. <laughs> Bracken, where can people follow you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter. It's just at Bracken McLeod. Um, I'm on Facebook, um, you know, Bracken McLeod author at Facebook. Uh, you know, if they're looking for my work, it's at every place. You know, fine books are sold, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Uh, really prefer you get it from your local indie, like Powell's Books. Um, if you're looking for a signed copy of my new one, Closing Costs, uh, Brookline Booksmith is going to be uh, in, in Boston, is going to be the uh, sort of official source for, for signed and personalized books. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's, you know, if you just Google Brookline Booksmith, you'll find them. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, small and indie bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get it how you get it, man. And, and if you're, you know, if you're a Kindle reader, buy it on Kindle. It's on audio too. And, and you know, it's just sort of, uh, it's everywhere. Uh, yep. So you heard it here, get it everywhere, but check it out at the, uh, story just mentioned, uh, final thoughts, Bracken. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was a lawyer, um, I would have clients, uh, you know, come to my office and I would prep them for like a deposition. And, and I would explain to them, I said, you know, if uh, at some point during the deposition, opposing counsel is going to say, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't addressed yet? And, and I would tell them that the answer is always no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I thought there was more. This isn't a deposition and I'm not under oath. So I just want to say, you know, this was a lot of fun. It's, you know, I never get tired of talking about craft and talking about horror and talking to people who are passionate about books and writing books. And, and it's just been a pleasure to be on the show, man. Oh, thank you so much, man. Uh, seriously, appreciate your time. It's been a little over an hour and a half. And, uh, you know, you hit us up when your next book comes out if you'd like. And uh, absolutely, right. will do. Sweet. And, uh, Brennan. You know what? I'm just thinking out loud. 
We should at some point have a New England roundtable. I don't know why we haven't thought of this before. So let's do it. Yeah, I'll Absolutely. keep that in mind. Keep that in mind for season three. Do we know um, any New England writers? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> more than enough. And I love that problem. Are you allowed to come? That's what she New said. Jersey over there. <laughs> I was born in Brockton, man. So I'm kind of a tough guy. I left when I was three. So watch out. Oh, see, so you're I, from Brockton. You're worried about me kicking your ass. I'm oh, from man. Bridgewater. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fight, man. I'm a teddy bear. I'm not messing with anybody from Brockton. Okay, you know what? I'll, I'll say this on air. I'll cut it if you want. But the f- one time I, I, I like, I was new to the whole uh, author thing and promoting yourself thing, and I mass sent out an invite to like this group and I didn't know it invited like I didn't know it added people to the groups to make it worse. You got pissed at me and I'm like I tried to reply and then you got you're like no you double down and I'm like I'm just gonna shut the fuck up. <laughs> I I apologize for that <laughs> I just I, I I was new and I'm like oh man Andy he looks like a warrior from like Bravehearts. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, you know it's it's a pet peeve and and uh, and hey, it's a good, um, it's a good one. I see now why. <laughs> be, before I was on Prozac, I might have been much more uh, antagonistic about it, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we have the relationship we do now. Yeah, hey man, no no grudges held. I just thought like I wasn't sure if I'd tell you, but then I thought of a story that Gabino told us, which uh-huh. he went to. I don't know what convention it was, but. He was talking to Brian Keene, and it's like the third time he met him. And he goes, so, I always heard that you were an asshole, but you seem like a nice guy. And it's not uh, at that same level, but uh, I, wasn't <laughs> sure if, I wasn't sure if it was a good idea to bring up. And I'm saying it on here. So I was like, yeah, it, might be, it might be funny. All right, yeah. yeah. I, I, I used to uh, – I'll, I'll add this. I used to uh, – you know, I used to hang out online on, like, shock lines, form or whatever, and, and me and Brian had, had disagreed online, you know, a couple of times, but it was always behind like, you know, pseudonyms. And I remember one of the first times I met him in person, he was going to go give the keynote speech for uh, Anthocon, right? And and he had put on some cologne and, and he turns to a person, he was like, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away from me, right? Turns to a person, he says, uh, is this too much? Can you smell me? And I shouted across the room, I'm like, yeah, everybody can smell you, Keen. And that was not the way you make friends with Brian Keene. Like, again, it took me years to recover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's another one. Uh, He's a sweetheart. He's a teddy bear, but he is. But he's a hot-headed Irishman. And I'm (laughs) saying that from from the same seat that he's in. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Hot-headed Scotsman right here. So, you know. We're of the same breed. Seriously, though, man, it's been a pleasure. Um, would love to have you back. And I don't uh, – will you be at Merrimack uh, I Valley? Will be. Yep. Uh, at Merrimack Valley Halloween Book Festival in October. Uh, I forget the exact date, but it's early October. But, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll be there with bells on them. I'm, I'm excited. It'll probably be the first uh, in-person book signing event. Um, you know, that I'll, that I'll do this year. And I'll have copies of closing costs there. I'm also – um, my short story collection, 13 Views of the Suicide Woods, which was formerly the Cheesing Press, 
I'm going to be republishing, and that will debut at Merrimack Valley. It'll have new material for four new uh, stories that weren't in the book before. Sweet. Um, that'll be the first con that Brandon and I go to together. Um, nice. So. Yeah, we'll oh. meet you there, man. I'd love to take a picture. And- be, uh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll take a picture and 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 give you a big hug and apologize for uh, for being a, a <laughs> dick bag to you online. I'm not mad about it, dude. I'm upset <laughs> online too. It's um, just, it's you know, it's online. <laughs> I, hey, look, I'm I'm not an innocent guy in this at all. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, you know what, guys? It's been a pleasure. Uh, listeners, the next episode uh, we are following up with the living legend Peter Straub, and I'm not sure what we're going to talk about because we haven't recorded that yet. But that will air this Monday. Uh, listeners, you have many podcasts to listen to. Thank you for listening to us, and check out Three Guys with Beards. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Aaron? Is that coming no, back? Sadly, we haven't we haven't resurrected it yet. Uh, we we tried, and then. Um, and then sort of life got in the way, COVID got in the way, and hopefully we'll be able to bring it back soon. God damn it, Jonathan Mayberry. <laughs> oh, no. I know, right? So it's going to be you. Um, it was going to be more. So, so, so John Mayberry and Chris Golden um, stepped away because, you know, they just got a billion uh, balls in the air at all times. And yeah. so it was going to be me, uh, Jim Moore, and Tom Snagoski. Oh, okay. And uh, and we recorded a couple of episodes, but we never got them put up because, like I said, you know, sort of COVID happened and everybody went into crisis mode. Um, you know, a few other things, and and um, and we need to, uh, you know, we need to try to resurrect it because it's been uh, it's been too long, and people seem to dig it. Uh, I certainly loved it. You know. Yeah, you guys gave us a tease on the end of the uh, horror show when that right before that ended. Oh, right. Yeah. I know, and then we dropped the ball. <laughs> Typical Brack. David Bracken. Uh, <laughs> man, it's been a real delight. I gotta go hit the hay, guys. I got work in the morning, so I've got. I've had a great time. Yeah, no, I gotta get my kid to camp in the morning too, and and uh, and. Uh, but yeah, no, this has been absolutely uh, a, a pleasure, and I'll be happy to come back anytime you want me. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, that, that, that's going to be a blast, too, because we have a lot of stuff that we haven't even touched on yet with you, such as being a lawyer. Oh. <laughs> I've got stories. <laughs> All right, brother. Have a good night. Brennan, have a good night. Listeners, have a fantastic night, morning, day, whatever time it is. Have a good one. Deadhead space.